Chapter 44 with Mahatma Gandhi at Vardha. We'll start today at page 427, right from the top. At three o'clock that afternoon in Vardha, I betook myself by previous appointment to the writing room of the saint who had been able to make an unflinching disciple out of his wife, a rare miracle. Gandhi looked up with his unforgettable smile. Mahatmaji, I said as I squatted beside him on the uncushioned mat, please tell me your definition of ahimsa. The avoidance of harm to any living creature in thought or deed. So, of course, we can see Mahatmaji is naturally going deeper than what traditionally might be considered <clears throat> the more outward expression is okay you know I'm, i try my best not to do any harm to anybody externally and uh, there is always this oh i'm not going to step on any creature and i'm not going to kill anything so i have to you know with all these external ideas behind nonviolence um, but of course it starts and it's most most profoundly infectious to us is in thought because that's where it's hidden. <laughs> That's where no one gets to see it. That's where we can play with it as much as we want and still pretend to be very, you know, loving and very kind to people. But in our thoughts, we get to really hurt them. You know, it's like we're like yeah, wrestling with them in our thoughts, punching them in our thoughts, uh, you know, strangling them in our thoughts. And then outwardly, we're like saying namaste. I say, oh, lovely. Oh, how nice to have you here. <laughs> so, of course, that's where, you know, that's where almost all of us fail at being nonviolent because, of course, none of us are overtly violent individuals. Maybe there are a handful really in the world today of people who you can just say these are very violent people compared to it. You know, Master, there was a story um, of, uh, I don't remember, it was the Boston police or something happened and uh, in which the police back then in the 30s 40s they go on a strike uh, you know they're just police force for a week or for a, some specific period of time they just stop policing the streets and in that time you know there was this report that oh, 70 break-ins happened and 100 robberies happened and uh, you know they were trying to show that see how important we are because if without us these 100 robberies are happening and Yoganandaji looked at it the other way. He says, look at that. Even without a police force in a city of a million, only 100 people are robbing each other. So we're looking at it from like, oh, these 100 people. But that's a very minuscule fraction of people who, were, who willingly want to hurt. The other people, they don't need policing. They don't need somebody to like be at their head all the time. And the same is true here. Most of us are you know, generally decent individuals. <laughs> except in thought in thought all of us are you know yeah more there. yeah we 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 dabble a lot with the possibilities of violence anger irritation judgment criticism whatever it is and these are the seeds that when they grow strong enough they make us violent outwardly as well and so we'll have many lifetimes where we're only violent inwardly but if we've done that long enough, we'll have some lifetimes that the power of that inward thought will make us violent outwardly as well. So just be very, very mindful of that kind of part of you because you really, we feel very comfortable in the fact that nobody can see it, nobody can hear it, nobody knows what I'm thinking. And that's really where the danger begins. Wasn't Master the one who said, you may not be able to control the first thought mm. that comes into your mind, but you can always choose to control the second one. Yeah. So it's not what comes in, it's the first you, yeah. thought that shows up, but what are you going to do with the next thought that follows the previous thought? And I think that's an also a very interesting way to work with our own, you know, judgmental attitudes and criticism and so forth, whatever thought that is not in perfect alignment with our highest self. But it's not just the first thought, but to catch you know, mm -hmm. the second thought and redirect it back to the center. <laughs> so 
So this was his definition, the avoidance of harm to any living creature in thought or deed. A beautiful ideal, Yogananda Ji says, but the world w will always ask, may one not kill a cobra to protect a child or oneself? So of course, this is a very practical, natural question. And Gandhiji responds, I could not kill a cobra without violating two of my vows, fearlessness and non-killing. I would rather try inwardly to calm the snake by vibrations of love. I cannot possibly lower my standards to suit my circumstances. With his amazing candor, Gandhi added, I must confess that I could not carry on this conversation were I faced by a cobra. So of course, Gandhiji has an ideal, a principle, but it's sweet to also see just, he's also a practical man. He says, you know, although when a cobra comes, I know I'm not going, I'm going to have a harder time. And it's interesting how all our themes are just, these beautiful themes are kind of going through and uniting in our week. We've just been studying Patanjali on Thursday and we're going through the Yamas and the Niyamas and Narayani also was suggesting truthfulness as you know, and this is one of the principles here, but of course non-violence as well. And we just read Patanjali saying when non-violence is perfected uh, or is firmly established in ourselves, at that time, you know, no hostilities can exist around us. A criminal will, you know, become like a child. Uh, ferocious wild animals will become like little cats. And that's kind of what Gandhiji is also alluding towards, is that to a certain degree, if nonviolence is truly established in my heart, even the thought to want to kill and the opposite side of it is fear. They both go hand in hand. It's usually a reaction of fear that makes us be violent, even in thought, even in word, even in anything. You know, it's just this trying to protect ourselves, protect the ego. This person said this to me, this person did this to me. And it's mostly a reactive instinct. None of us sit, even in our thoughts, it's not like I'm playing out fantasies of hurting people. But, you know, I'm just constantly sending out very subtle vibrations of, of negativity towards them. Uh, so fearlessness and non-violence kind of go hand in hand. But what's important for us is we can't wait until we're faced with cobras or murderers or, you know, we can't wait till that point because as Gandhi himself is saying, ah, but you know, if a cobra were to come, there's a good chance that I won't be able to actually uh, hold firm and steady in this particular principle that I would like to live perfectly. And so what's important for him is that he practices it when there's no cobra, <laughs> when it's when just it's people, easier. when it's easier, when the things at stake is not the life of a child or the, your own life. And that time, you're just trying to practice it. And that's where thought is so important, because if we're not practicing it in thought every day, then definitely when the opportunity is, or circumstances of a much higher degree, there's almost no chance that we'll be able to, in that moment, muster this idea of non-violence, this idea of fearlessness in our hearts. I love the fact that all these great souls, they not just live their lives by principles and, of course, practice what they preach, but they see their, their principles as vows mm -hmm. that they cannot break. And how many of us leave the teachings of our own guru, the teachings, the path that you are following, the commitment as, as a vow that you cannot break even on a daily basis? Very few of us. And, and I like the fact that Gandhi uses the word well, vow. Mm -hmm. Like, I live my life by vows. I remember Yogananda saying to all of us disciples while studying the teachings, if you practice what I'm saying, even 1% 
I mean, if you really practice something to the point that becomes your daily vow, your, your resolution, even that thing, if you perfect that, even 1%, the chances that you can get, be free in this lifetime are higher. And, and, and I would like to, to meditate on and, and see how I can live the teachings as, as vows mm. that I'm committed to fulfill daily and not compromise that uh, according to the circumstances. And Gandhi here says it as well. Yeah. I cannot possibly lower my standards to suit Smart. Suit, yeah. Suit my circumstances. Something that it's a very we, powerful line. Very powerful line. Yeah. I cannot possibly lower my. We're always lowering our standards. <laughs> the moment it does not suit us, and then when there's nothing, no problem, no trouble, then we suddenly become saints again and say, oh, and then all the gyan flows perfectly through our mouths. <laughs> but the moment a tiny little thing happens, we're like, Poo, our standard goes way low. You know, so anyway, but uh, but of course, as Gandhi is also saying, it's a process. It's <laughs> if I were to be faced by a cobra right now, I don't know where I would stand. Mm -hmm. But at least to the best of my ability, these are the vows, and I cannot break them. And then he also was <laughs> responsible for for a country. Yeah. You know, so so the more we embrace responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for a family for our children as a mother will take responsibility for her children and then it continues to grow as a boss will need to take responsibility for his company and his employees and the same with a master comes and takes responsibility for all his disciples and some of them for mankind you know it's a big responsibility that you are not just working with your own power with whatever you like or not but you are just in cooperation with God's power as well. You are responsible for people and their actions and their growth. And I think Gandhi was representing that responsibility at its highest. And those people he was trying to, to change by his example. And he wasn't going to compromise that. I remarked on several very recent Western books on diet which lay on his desk. Yes, diet is important in the Satyagraha movement, as everywhere else, he said with a chuckle. Because I advocate complete continence for Satyagrahis, I am always trying to find out the best diet for the celibate. One must conquer the palate before he can control the procreative instinct. Semi-starvation or unbalanced diets are not the answer. After overcoming the inward greed for food, a satyagrahi must continue to follow a rational vegetarian diet with all necessary vitamins, minerals, calories and so forth. By inward and outward wisdom in regard to eating, the Satyagrahi's sexual fluid is easily turned into vital energy for the whole body. Again, you see a very practical approach mm -hmm. that Gandhiji has instituted. So, okay, you've got, we've got several greeds, several pleasures in life, several you know, natural inclinations in life. And so he says, all right, rather than asking people first to start with what could be a harder expression let's see if they can control their palate if they can control their greed through food and of course we know how essential food can be especially in terms of the the gunas and the more tamas and rajas that we naturally begin to you know take into our bodies somewhere or the other that guna is going to express itself and it usually expresses itself in the form of desires in the vibration of our desires you know this level or at a higher level and so Gandhi was always trying to fine-tune a balance where people could both be active and, you know, vital and energetic and involved, yet at the same time uh, understood that, oh, if I control this, if I showed self-control here, if I could mitigate the, the feeling of greed that is just 
subtly natural in food, isn't it? Like, you know, I mean, I know it for a fact. If it's in front of me, even if it's like, uh, you know, I'm a little full, but that one thing is there, chalo, it doesn't matter. Let's also just have it. It also can make you violent if you don't have I hope you're not suggesting that I get violent if, if I'm not fed on time. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't suggesting I so. that. I was thinking about that funny. <laughs> no, he's not violent. Okay, he doesn't have food. Call the police. <laughs> But just the, the instinct, you know, of not having of, mm -hmm. you know, the basic needs mm, mm -hmm. creates yeah. within you a violent, you know, like irritability, like irritability and yeah. frustration and those feelings lead you to eventually fight for it, mm -hmm. steal for it. Um, I don't know. In yeah, that extreme measures. Extreme then. measures, yes. Very true. So you're just seeing how, how lovely an approach he has. Of course, his standard is very high and, you know, rightly so, that's his standard. We're not all expected to meet it, but those of people who say, I want to live by these things, whatever standard he set, he's also set some means that is directional to achieve that. All right, let's start here, then let's move on, then let's move on, and eventually, this, is, this will become established in you naturally. And that's the most important thing. Because over here he says, semi-starvation or unbalanced diets are not the answer. And this is not about diets alone. This is in any attitude that we hold. Uh, suppressing certain things, forcing certain attitudes that aren't really natural for us yet. They're not the answer because sooner or later, A, they won't work. And B, they tend to then, as Narayani was saying about frustration and irritation, they tend to come out with a vehemence because you've been starving them for so long. And so it's important for us to always be mindful of who we are, what's our next step, what's an easier step to conquer first, and then move on to perhaps those higher degrees of self-control. The Mahatma and I compared our knowledge of good meat substitutes. The avocado is excellent, I said. There are numerous avocado groves near my center in California. Gandhi's face lit with interest. Now, at this time, I doubt avocados were heard of in India. I wonder if they would grow in Vardha. The Satyagrahis would appreciate a new food. You can, you can just tell, like, the moment they introduce a new variety of food, these guys must be like, oh, wow. Okay. All this while, like, you can see they eat rice and a little, what was it, neem paste and some cardamom seeds. So, I mean... Even Gandhi's low standard is of a very high standard, so we, we may not all survive under his guidance. I will be sure to send some avocado plants from Los Angeles to Vardha, I added. Eggs are a high-protein food. Are they forbidden to satyagrahis? Not unfertilized eggs, the Mahatma laughed reminiscently. For years, I would not countenance their use. Even now, I personally do not eat them. One of my daughter-in-laws was once dying of malnutrition. Her doctor insisted on eggs. I would not agree and advised him to give her some egg substitute. Gandhiji, the doctor said, unfertilized eggs contain no life sperm. Therefore, no killing is involved. I then gladly gave permission for my daughter-in-law to eat eggs and she was soon restored to health. So again, we see in Gandhi this, this ability, first, to be very particular about his principle, and second, to then adjust it when a higher truth comes to light or some more clarity comes to him. And that's a, it's a wonderful, you can just see, I mean, of course, you can see his, you know, nope, <laughs> just complete, this is the principle, there's no moving from it at all. So you can see the strength that he holds. But then you also see that ability to immediately adapt, to be flexible when the not again not when circumstances. His daughter-in-law is dying, so it's a very difficult circumstance. He's not lowering his standard because of circumstance. Most of us would say, 
I think this is a situation where I can lower him. And it's not even his standard that he's lowering. It's somebody else's. Nobody's asking. So it's not like, you eat eggs and she'll be well. No, she has to eat eggs. But even then, we're very firm. But then the moment you brought clarity to why, if there was a real good reason that did not violate his principle, instantly. He wasn't more like, mm, let me think about it. Okay, let's see. Show me proof. Let me you know, study 600 other pages to make sure what you're... All right, done. And so even in our own lives, both the strength of a principle first and then the ability to adapt if we find a higher truth that comes to light. On the previous night, Gandhi had expressed a wish to receive the Kriya Yoga of Lahiri Mahashaya. I was touched by the Mahatma's open-mindedness and spirit of inquiry. He is childlike in his divine quest, revealing the pure receptivity which Jesus praised in children and said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. The hour of my promised instruction had arrived. Several satyagrahis now entered the room, Mr. Desai, Dr. Pingley, and a few others who desired the Kriya technique. I first taught the little class the physical yogoda exercise. This is what it was called prior to be uh, then called the energization exercises. Yoganandaji called it the yogoda training or yogoda exercise. The body is visualized as divided into 20 parts. The will directs energy in turn to each section. Soon everyone was vibrating before me like a human motor. It was easy to observe the rippling effect on Gandhi's 20 body parts at all times completely exposed to view. Though very thin, he is not unpleasingly so. The skin of his body is smooth and unwrinkled. Later, I initiated the group into the liberating technique of Kriya Yoga. So you can see here, even Master, like, all right, first we're going to do the energization exercises. Everybody is like, oh, I hope he just goes directly. First, we're going to do the energization exercises and just teach you, you know, what that, that just that energy control is so important as part of our Kriya practice. But of course, as we can see over here, Yogananda-ji, knowing who he's giving the technique to, can adjust in terms of when he thinks, all right, these people are ready and... <laughs> These people are disciplined. Yes, These people, people if they say, I will do this, yeah. will do this. Yeah. So those are, those are the standards. Even Yoganandaji would not lower for any circumstance. Mm -hmm. Not say, oh, just because he's, oh, Gandhiji is such a well-known person, let me just give him. No, Gandhiji, because if this man says, I will do it, he will definitely do it. And then, uh, I don't know if it's here, but... Yoganandaji somewhere says that Gandhi promised him in six months to tell him what he, he says, give me six months to practice before I will comment on what I feel from both the exercises and the Kriya technique. I don't know what he must have said or if he perhaps was able to get word through. But Master said somewhere that Gandhiji practiced his Kriya Yoga faithfully until the end of his life. Yeah. So we can only imagine what a technique of sorts might have added to the spiritual evolution and discipline that he already had in his life. And that's something that many of us, when we come to the spiritual path, we keep forgetting that there are the basics that we should be working on, which is the yamas on the yamas. Gandhi had them already perfected almost. Mm. So he was so ready to take all that power to his next level as well. So I, I like to see this process that, I mean, his life and how this libera liberating technique came into his life when, when he had those yamas and the yamas perfected as, there were their, their vows, their, their primarily mm. way of freedom yeah. almost so yeah this was a this would have been what 12 years prior to his death his yeah. death no yeah. 1948 or 49 48. 48. 
So yeah, 12 odd years. So nice, a full Jupiter cycle of practicing Kriya Yoga. The Mahatma has reverentially studied all world religions, the Jain scriptures, the biblical New Testament, and the sociological writings of Tolstoy are the three main sources of Gandhi's non-violent convictions. He has stated his credo thus, I believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Zend Avasta, which I believe is the Zoroastrian um, scripture, to be as divinely inspired as the Vedas. I believe in the institution of gurus, but in this age millions must go without a guru because it is a rare thing to find a combination of perfect purity and perfect learning. But one need not despair of ever knowing the truth of one's religion because the fundamentals of Hinduism as of every great religion are unchangeable and easily understood. I believe like every Hindu in God and his oneness, in rebirth and salvation. I can no more describe my feeling for Hinduism than for my own wife. She moves me as no other woman in the world can. Not that she has no faults. I dare say she has many more than I see myself. But the feeling of an indissoluble bond is there. Even so, I feel for and about Hinduism with all its faults and limitations. Nothing delights me so much as the music of the Gita or the Ramayana by Tulsidas. When I fancied I was taking my last breath, the Gita was my solace. Hinduism is not an exclusive religion. In it, there is room for the worship of all prophets of the world. It is not a missionary religion in, in the ordinary sense of the term. It has no doubt absorbed many tribes in its fold. But this absorption has been of an evolutionary, imperceptible character. Hinduism tells each man to worship God according to his own faith or dharma, and so lives at peace with all religions. Very beautifully kind of put both just his own belief from a religious perspective, but also so expansive, so broad, so all-inclusive, all-encompassing. And uh, it is curious. It's an interesting thing, Hinduism, the way we even use the term. And of course, when we say Hinduism, we think of very limited forms. We think of the forms of God. We think of the Vedas. We think of a few key scriptures. But you know, we were just having a conversation yesterday at lunch about Narayani was being educated on the, you know, the Ramayana and Mahabharata, the, the TV shows that used to play back in the 80s and 90s and how it changed, you know, the Indian society um, and all the current shows of the mythological characters that continue to play and are very popular and people love them so much so that the person who's playing that character, people think he's Lord Ram and people think that's Lord Krishna and have that kind of reverential devotional feeling towards the actor. So that's how, you know, gung-ho we are about our scriptures and about our traditions. But what we see when we see so many different things is we've just seen over the years, how many different streams have been absorbed into what we call Hinduism. Shaivism, the Devi worship, the, you know, uh, the Vishnu's followers, you've got uh, tiny little Ishtadevtas in every village, you've got saints of every kind, every hundred kilometers there'll be an entirely different, you know, saint with an entirely different teaching, with an entirely different practice, and all of it is considered Hinduism. All of it somehow falls under this one umbrella where, and we just believe this is all ours. Nobody goes, nobody who is a Shaivite will go and fight with somebody who loves Krishna because it's just understood that it's all the same. Yet, we'd fight with somebody who <laughs> believes in Jesus because suddenly somehow that's become very different. When, how? Here's a one, one you know, version of the divine we believe in. Here's another version of the divine. These two are compatible with one another. 
but the third is not compatible. And somewhere we've kind of we've drawn a line, but the very history of Hinduism is just constantly a saint will come, a self-realized master comes, brings a different way to look at it, it becomes a part of Hinduism. Another one comes, it becomes part of Hinduism. One form of God is created and a clarity on how to worship that form, that becomes part of Hinduism. And so we're a very, in fact, there is no, there is no one source from which Hinduism comes. There isn't one point of reference for Hinduism. And so it's really a very open space to be in, yet somehow in all that openness has developed a certain closeness. <laughs> and somewhere we've kind of just drawn a line around it and we've kind of kept certain masters and certain saints and certain self-realized beings away from the fold. And it's, a, it's an interesting and peculiar thing that we would have done that because it's been our practice for centuries and millennia not to have done that, to always have been able to absorb into ourselves because it's the one teaching of God. Yoganandaji over here in the footnotes, and I underline this because I really, really liked this. He gives the definition of the word dharma, you know, because dharma we see as, of course, dharam also as religion, and we see dharma as our duty, we see dharma as righteousness. And so it's just a nice thing to read once. A comprehensive Sanskrit word for law. That's what dharma is, law. Conformity to law or natural righteousness, duty as inherent in the, character, in the circumstances in which a man finds himself at any given time. Let's just read that again. Duty as inherent in the circumstances in which a man finds himself at any given time. Again, a very adaptable duty for every person slightly different, for every circumstance. If you're a householder, you have a certain dharma. If you're following a different path, you have a certain dharma. If this is your intention in life, you have a certain dharma. It's just not an imposed reality, but born out of what is it that you are trying to express and achieve. Inherent in the circumstance, the duty for that moment is dharma. The scriptures define dharma as the natural universal laws whose observance enables man to save himself from degradation and suffering. So we come back to that word law. If we can attune ourselves to that universal law, we're in dharma. And if we're out of that universal law, then we're in a dharma. And that's what Hinduism is, that sanatan dharma. Is what are the universal laws and what are the ways for us to attune to it? And it's unfortunate that we've kind of made it so... I don't know, a little bit exclusive, as if it applies only to us and then it doesn't apply to anybody else. And it's ours, but it's nobody else's. But it's just a universal law for all mankind to attune to. It would be lovely for us to kind of relax back into that reality again. Of Christ, Gandhi has written, I am sure that if he were living here now among men, he would bless the lives of many who perhaps have never even heard his name, just as it is written. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father. This is one of uh, Jesus' sayings from the Bible in which he's telling his disciples, not the people who say, Lord, Lord to me, like Bhagwan, Bhagwan, oh Guru, Guru, not those people are the ones who are actually my disciples, but they who follow the will of my Father. And this is again what we were talking about. We don't have to have like, oh, Krishna is my God or this. We just have to follow Dharma. And then we're disciples of all these great masters. But we get caught up in who are we saying Lord to? Who are we worshipping? Who are we confining our you know, you can say, worship to words. And then whether we're actually following what they say, whether we're actually interested in what they're saying, 
whether we mold our lives in accordance to that divine principle, it doesn't matter to us anymore. The only thing we're interested is in, Tu kisko Lord bula rahe? Who's your Bhagwan? And that's it. And that defines who you are. Whereas just as Christ said, and as Gandhi is saying here, not who calls me Lord, not who addresses me as some divine being, but he who follows the will of my Father, he who actually practices what I'm saying. And then we're a disciple. And so we're all in many ways disciples of many of these great masters, and we just don't know it. But we are, because many of us are following the very principles that they have laid down. And so Gandhi considered himself a disciple of Christ, even as a Hindu, because what he was doing was following the same things Christ said, just as Krishna said, just as Ram said, just as whoever you want, you know, it doesn't matter who's up there. Recently, I was having a conversation with somebody who wanted to know, how will I find my guru? Can I have more gurus? You know, can I have more than one gurus? Um, I like this master also, I like that master also, so how should I choose? And, and, you know, one thing we often talk about here is like, I don't think it's so important who the guru is. <laughs> and the question is, are you a good enough disciple? <laughs> if you work on discipleship, the guru will clarify himself to you. But we're so caught up in who should I, who is worthy of me to be my guru? And we're looking for the perfect guru who he should fit all my standards. And in a, in, in a sense, he should essentially just please me. He should fulfill my current understandings and that's it. He shouldn't challenge me at all. If he challenges me, he can't be my guru. <laughs> Let me look for somebody else. And that's how we see our religion as well. What just fits the same tradition that I'm already born in and the limited understanding that I already have and that's it. Let me not be challenged beyond that at all. And uh, Gandhi was up for challenge as we know and as we can see he was always challenging. You know the book that I read on Gandhi's life it was very interesting because nobody liked it when he brought in Christ. Nobody liked it when he talked about the Quran. You know he, he would constantly lose favor among the masses every time he broke ranks from the orthodox Hindu traditions. But that guy just stuck with it till the very end. Because it wasn't a popularity contest, you see. He wasn't interested in winning people's adulations from that limited perspective. He was interested in expanding their horizons. And he lost a lot of people in the process, but he never ever stopped. Not till the last day of his life. And that's the kind of principle we need to live by. You know, not mold and change according to uh, popular perception. In the lesson of his own life, Jesus gave humanity the magnificent purpose and the single objective toward which all ought to aspire. I believe that he belongs not solely to Christianity, but to the entire world to all land and races. On my last evening in, evening in Vardha, I addressed the meeting which had been called by Mr. Desai at the town, in town hall. The room was thronged to the window sills with about 400 people assembled to hear the talk on yoga. I spoke first in Hindi, then English. Our little group returned to the ashram in time for a good night glimpse of Gandhi enfolded in peace and correspondence. He was always at correspondence. Uh, another side fun thing that I, when I was reading is, every day hundreds of letters would come to Gandhiji and he would have answered all of them. And he would make his, you know, Mr. Desai also there and respond to every one of them. It's like impossible the amount of time he had on his hands. But, and these, in this book, it's fun. Some of these letters are like published and it'll be one guy asking advice on diet. It'll be another guy asking advice on, you know, some issue he's having on his farm and the irrigation problems that he's going through. And to everybody, he would respond. So that's another amazing aspect of his life that, again, none of us really tune into. We're not even aware of just how much, how involved he was in people's lives. Night was still lingering when I rose at 5 a.m. 
village life was already stirring, a first bullock cart by the ashram gates, then a peasant with his huge burden balanced precariously on his head. At breakfast, our trio sought out Gandhi for farewell pronouns. Mahatmaji, goodbye. I knelt to touch his feet. India is safe in your keeping. Years have rolled by since the Vardha idol. The earth, oceans and skies have darkened with a world at war. Alone among great leaders, Gandhi has offered a practical, non-violent alternative to armed might. To redress grievances and remove injustices, the Mahatma has employed non-violent means which again and again have proved their effectiveness. He states his doctrine in these words. I have found that life persists in the midst of destruction. Therefore, there must be a higher law than that of destruction. Only under the law, only under that law would well-ordered society be intelligible and life worth living. If that is the law of life, we must work it out in daily existence. Wherever there are wars, wherever we are confronted with an opponent conquer by love. I have found that the certain law of love has answered in my own life as the law of destruction never has. In India, we have had an ocular demonstration of the operation of this law on the widest scale possible. I don't claim that nonviolence has penetrated the 360 million people in India. But I do claim it has penetrated deeper than any other doctrine in an incredibly short time. It takes a fairly strenuous course of training to attain a mental state of nonviolence. It is a disciplined life, like the life of a soldier. The perfect state is reached only when the mind, body and speech are in proper coordination. Every problem would lend itself to solution if we determined to make the law of truth and non-violence the law of life. Just as a scientist will work wonders out of various applications of the laws of nature, a man who applies the laws of love with scientific precision can work great wonders. Non-violence is infinitely more wonderful and subtle than forces of nature like, for instance, electricity. The law of love is a far greater science than any modern science. Again, just beautiful words, but some things for us to tune into, especially here. It takes a fra fairly strenuous course of training to attain, attain a mental state of nonviolence. It is a disciplined life like the life of a soldier. Now, this is one place where it's hard for us to accept something, and we would call it impractical. Most of us, if given a choice, would say nonviolence is an impractical way to achieve change. You know, we've all lived it in our lives. Um, it's easier for me to achieve change if I raise my voice and I forcefully tell somebody what to do. I mean, it's naturally much easier to do that. We've all seen it. Bosses are doing it all the time. Parents are doing it all the time. Nobody's trying to achieve change non-violently, even at the home level. It's easier even to change myself if I am a little more violent with myself at times. So from a practical perspective, a lot of us will feel actually non-violence doesn't quite work. And why doesn't it work? It's because it takes a fairly strenuous course of training. You see, in order to be non-violent, we have to change ourselves completely. But in order to be violent, we have to change nothing. So the world is very, it's very, it's like, oh, let's go to war because I don't have to change anything to go to war. <laughs> I just get to be upset and angry and get my irritations fed. I have to do nothing. I don't have to change any aspect of my being in order to be violent, <laughs> in order to enforce how I feel, enforce how I think. But the moment I have to be non-violent, I have to change everything about myself. So that is why even our own country, while there was, you know, a, a disciplined group of satyagrahis that did form around 
uh, Gandhiji, but even our, in the entirety of the country, of course, couldn't because people don't want to change themselves. We want results, we want change to come, but we don't want to change. So that's why in each of our lives, it's going to be very hard for us actually to achieve these principles is because in order to do that, and I like this line here, it is a disciplined life, like the life of a soldier. And a soldier's life is disciplined. You know, my father was a soldier. And I grew up seeing him and <laughs> it wasn't an easy life. And he was still an officer, but <laughs> the soldiers that were under his command had an even harder life. How much, when you wake up, what you do, every aspect of their lives is regimented. There is no time where you get to just frolic and just be. Every part of it. Because every aspect of their life is created for one purpose. To prepare for war. So they can't have, and it's not like war is happening all the time. But they live with the idea that when war happens, at that time I'm not going to have the time to prepare. At that time, I'm not going to be disciplined suddenly. Oh, oh, peace chal rahe, tu aram se baitha rahe. Jab war ka time aega, then suddenly I'll ask you to be, get disciplined. It's just not going to happen. So they have to be disciplined every day in the middle of peace, all the time, all the time, all the time, with the possibility that maybe one day war will come. So they're preparing for something that doesn't even exist, that isn't even happening. But we don't live life that way, do we? We, we are aram se karengi, we'll just do whatever we want, whenever we want it, and then when things get difficult, then we will look for change. Then I want to join, I want to meditate now, because suddenly my life is really hard. But I'm not going to meditate every day. Oh, suddenly, no, no, now I want to attune to the principles of prosperity, because now I don't have money. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? I, that doesn't work that way. It's a disciplined life like that of a soldier. And that's an important thing to remember. A devotee's life is a disciplined life like that of a soldier. There's no time to frolic and no time to think about yourself. There's no time to be, oh, mere, mere feelings and my thoughts. There's just no time. Soldiers don't have time for these things. And that's the truth. If we do not accept, we will be wasting a lot of time in the process. It's a disciplined life like that of a soldier. Every moment is regimented. Every interaction is purposeful. Everything we do, every act we make is only with the thought that this will take me closer to God. Otherwise, we don't do it. And that is why none of us think nonviolence is practical. That is why people think the spiritual path is not practical because nobody is willing to discipline themselves for it. And if this is perhaps one of the greatest teachings, you can say, of Gandhiji's, whether it's for non-violence or for whatever end, is that it's going to consume you and it's going to take everything from you. Only then can you do it. And so it doesn't appeal to the world because nobody wants to change themselves. Nobody wants to completely remold their lives. Nobody wants it to be hard. We want it to be easy. And... I don't know if we're ready to prepare for war in times of peace. But the devotee must prepare for war, always. <laughs> because we're always at war with ourselves, we're always at war with Maya. And so if we're not always preparing for war, well, we're losing. So that's a beautiful thought for us to tune into because we think of spirituality as this fluffy, lovey-dovey, you know, reality which is and we think about it that as if it exists for us. It's for me, it's for my growth, it's for my... <laughs> it's not for you. It's for war. It's for you to get so disciplined <laughs> that you realize you're at war at all times with Maya. And then you don't let your guard down in everything. Uh, well, it's a beautiful thought to, to live by, to try to feel in our lives, for each of us as devotees to ask, are we preparing for war at all times? Anyone have last minute no, thought? I think we are done, but Gandhi says here at the end that line or that to reach that state of perfect disciplined life, 
he says, it's only when the mind, the body, and speech are in perfect coordination. It's just not, it's not enough to have good thoughts alone and don't act accordingly to those thoughts. It's not enough to say, to say nice words if your body is not emanating and is not manifesting those words that you are saying. And, and I like that, like imperfect coordination, those three parts of your being, your mind, which is your thoughts, your, your heart, and your body, what emanates from your posture, from your presence. And when we learn to integrate these three aspects of our being, then we can start talking about that disciplined life. And it's just a beautiful concept about, you know, living our lives daily as soldiers are just get ready for our inner body because it's it has nothing to do what's going on outside ourselves but but what's happening inside and which side of the war we want to be part of what's like which which side no we want to join join <laughs> and wow this we're constantly joining our enemies while we call them our enemies <laughs> Anyway, beautiful, beautiful chapter. I hope everyone is enjoying as much as we are. Gandhi has really brought great wisdom and has brought India to a greater state of spiritual evolution for those who are following still his teachings. Did Master say he, he was a saint, no? Master said he was very saintly. Very saintly. He wasn't yet, but I'm sure he's there now way. or wherever he is well that was lovely